We are in our summer of Psalms today, and uh, we're going to be in Psalm 15, so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up to that, and we'll, we'll get to that in just a moment. <clears throat> when I was uh, a little kid, we used to play this game. You could play it on the playground, you could, you could play it just about anywhere uh, you wanted to, and the best scenario was a, a large pile of snow. Um, and 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 uh, it, it 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 made that game it made the game so much harder for anybody that was actually involved. And sometimes you could use a pile of dirt, but dirt was typically a lot more dangerous, and uh, and uh, maybe not as as fun to play on. But the game was called King of the Hill. Anybody ever heard of this game? Yeah. So you may have played it yourself. Uh, at by the way, that game would probably be entirely unacceptable on any playground. Uh, because it can be a little bit violent, uh, or at least it was when I was a little kid, pretty violent. But here's the general principle. You want to be uh, the king of the hill. You, you want to be on top. You want, now, to get to be the king of the hill, you have to get to the top of the hill, and you have to keep anybody else from getting up there. Anybody familiar with this? You played this game? Right? Okay. So you got to keep anybody from getting into that position. And like I said, snow is really the best because snow is very slippery, and it's hard to even get up the hill in the first place. It's certainly hard to keep your position up there. And, uh, but once you get there, you want to keep pe other people from getting into your spot. And, and uh, if you're king of the hill, man, it's a glorious position to be in, right? I mean, I'm king of the hill. You know, tell me, Carl, can you play king of the hill on your playgrounds today? Okay, thank you. All right, I didn't think so. <clears throat> but the being the king of the hill, it's a glorious position to be in. Why? Because you're the king right? Uh, uh, and, and admittedly, it can be really tough to get somebody down from that, that lofty position unless you gang up on them, okay? So you can take two or three together, and you can kind of work together to take down the king, and there's a really good chance that you're going to be successful. With two or three, you can probably topple the king, but there's a trade-off. Only one of you gets to be king. Only one person actually gets to succeed ascent to the top of the hill. And if you think about it, guys, so much of our world is based on the same principle. Uh, it's this scrappy fight to get to the top and to win at all costs. And once you have gotten to the top, once you have become king of the hill, you got to maintain that position no matter what and no matter what it means for anybody else. And sometimes, just like when you're king of the hill, other people may help you topple the current king, but in the end, only one of you actually gets to be the king when the victory is finally found. And the problem with this game and with this mentality, it's, uh, there's two reasons. Uh, the first is in order to get to the top, you're going to have to take somebody else down. You're going to have to exercise some kind of power, some kind of uh, authority or strength to remove that person from their position. And to do this, it, are, it requires things that are typically aimed at the demise of the other person. And the second thing is that the goal must be to hold that power and not share it with anybody else. Is that me? Okay. I've done it multiple times. Uh, <laughs> you you, you want to hold that power and not share it with anybody else. The goal in the king of the hill is to dominate and to control, to, to exercise your strength in such a manner that everybody else just kind of remains in this, this clawing, uh, fighting, begging position. And I think that there are some people that, that see God in a, in a similar light. 
they see God as this old man in the sky who's, who's holding everybody at bay with his mighty hand, and, and, and he's allowing them to make the ascent, but he's never really letting them get that close to him. And certainly they aren't going to be next to him, right there with him. Some of these ideas are rooted in the teaching and the preaching of the past that, that, that painting God primarily as this huge wagging finger, disapproving and hurling lightning bolts from the sky at those who did the wrong thing. But the true picture of God, the, the accurate picture of God is, is far, far different. Instead, we, we serve a sovereign God who is the creator of all things, who is Savior to all of humankind, who is full of grace and full of love and, and mercy, but is also just and righteous. He is holy, and it is this holiness that cannot coexist with evil and wickedness. And so He has given us not just the gift of salvation, but He has given us the gift of sanctification in order that we might be cleansed and we might be purified and set apart to not just do the work that we're called to do, but to do it with Him, to be with Him. And our psalm today will help us better see, I hope, our ability to be in God's presence, to be in a level of intimacy with Him that is readily available. But to be in that place, to be in God's presence, means that who we are and from the inside out has to change. Much of the psalms that we read can normally be identified as prayers and songs and hymns to be sung, but this particular psalm is, is kind of more of a liturgy. It could have possibly been used, probably was used, in the process of installing someone into service for the temple, but it also would have a could have applied, would have applied to anybody that was seeking to be in the presence of God, to serve in the temple. And for those of us today who live under this promise of the new covenant that came to us because of Jesus' work on the cross, each one of us are now a part of that priesthood with direct access to God. So turn with me in Psalm chapter 15, and let's look at this together today. Oh Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? Those who walk blamelessly and do what is right and speak the truth from their heart, who do not slander with their tongue and do no evil to their friends, nor take up a reproach against their neighbors, in whose eyes the wicked are despised, but who honor those who fear the Lord, who stand by their oath even to their hurt, who do not lend money at interest and do not take a bribe against the innocent. Those who do these things shall never be moved. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we receive your word today, believing that it is full of life, and in it is something for us to grow from and to learn from. And so, Father, as we study your word today, I pray that that would be the case. I pray that our hearts, our spirits be receptive to what you have to teach us this morning. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
In these particular times, the very presence of God uh, would have been found in a place such as what is mentioned in the passage, in a tent. Now, there are some translations that, that change the word tent to temple or to sanctuary, uh, which are also uh, just as accurate because what is important here for us is the, is the recognition of God's presence. And for us today, as I said a moment ago, we're living under the new covenant <clears throat> that was given through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And we have the ability to abide in the presence of God wherever we might be. It's not restricted to a place. Holy ground is not this building. Holy ground is not this platform. Holy ground is wherever those who are filled with the Spirit of God place their feet. But we must understand this. We have been given an invitation to abide in a place that without the sanctifying grace of God, we would never be able to enter. We have been given an invitation to abide in a place that without the sanctifying grace of God, we would never be able to enter. We see this word abide in the first verse of our scripture today, and on the surface we would probably read that as just being present, being alongside someone or something, but the original Hebrew word, which I'm not even going to say to you this morning because it's really difficult to pronounce, but the original Hebrew word actually translates to someone who is dwelling as an alien, as a dependent. In other words, it's not on your own power that you are where you are. This invitation that has been extended to us to abide in the presence of God, it's afforded to us through the work of Jesus Christ. It was Jesus himself who said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And it was Jesus' work on the cross that that door, through his work on the cross, that that door was opened. Perhaps you remember the imagery from the story of Jesus' crucifixion as he breathed his last breath. The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us that in that moment, the veil was torn from the very top to the very bottom. And this was both a symbolic and a literal illustration of the fact that Jesus shed blood had now removed the barrier that kept us from being directly in God's presence. And it was God's grace that created that opening, but it is a grace that intended to sanctify us, to make us holy so that we can be in His presence. The Scripture tells us this, that God does not delight in wickedness. It says, evil will not sojourn with you, with Him. That word sojourn, by the way, is the same one that we find in Psalm 15, 1, abide. Translated as abide in Psalm 15, and Psalm 5 is translated as sojourn. There is no place in God's presence for those who hold on to wickedness in their lives. There is no place in God's presence for those who hold on to wickedness in their lives. There is no place in God's presence for those who resist the sanctifying grace of God that calls us into holy love. 
And our abiding in God's presence requires the daily demonstration of holy love. Now, a holy love is not the kind of love that we so often ascribe to in our world today. Love is kind of a throwaway term. It's a disposable emotion that's a lot more based on our feelings and our actual convictions. But holy love is something entirely different. In her book, A Theology of Love, uh, an author by the name of Mildred Bangs Wincoop writes about how John Wesley described holy love. And this is what she writes. She says, love is the gospel message. Christian love revealed by God in Christ is the correction of man's limited, selfish, selective, perverted love. It stands against any human concept of love projected into a theory of God's nature and His way with man. You see, the nature of God, which is based in a holy and perfect love, requires a complete alteration of our human nature. This is the only way, the psalmist says, that we can abide in God's presence. So let's go back and look at what this looks like according to our psalm today. You're going to see a long list pop up on the screen here, and I'm going to give you a moment to look at all these things. A blameless walk, right living, speaking truth with sincerity, a refusal to gossip, refraining from harm to neighbors, not speaking evil of your friends, despising evil, honoring righteousness, keeping your word even when it hurts, the psalm says. Not seeking financial gain at the expense of others, refusing to lie regardless of the temptation. I, th- I wonder when we look at this list, and you don't have to answer this, but I just wonder if when you look at this list, are any of you going, uh oh? I might have a problem. I think that just like many of the things that we consider to be, you know, hallmarks of the Christian life, we can probably say, yeah, I mean, I'm doing, I'm doing pretty good in this area, I'm doing pretty good in that area, but can we say, with all of who we are today, I've got all my bases covered, I'm good, I'm golden, thanks, Pastor, I'm just going to check out now. Can we say that? John Calvin once wrote that faith alone saves, but faith that saves is not alone. In other words, it is faith in Jesus Christ that saves you. The Bible says those that confess with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in their hearts that He was raised from the dead shall be saved, right? But faith is not the end of it. Because faith is intended to produce the psalm is, is saying that those, those who can abide in the presence of God, who can stand on that holy hill with God, are those whose faith has produced a life of righteousness. Maybe you're thinking, well, this really does kind of sound like a king of the hill situation. I mean... You see, God's invited us into His presence, but then He has extended this right art of judgment <laughs> and, and this condemnation. And there, there's just no way I can ever do all these. I can't do all these things. 
There's no way I can be all of that. You're right, you can't. You cannot be all of that. The bar, the bar is set pretty high. The expectations are way up there. This picture of holy love is something that kind of seems so far out of reach, why even try? But I do want you to know this this morning. It is not out of reach. Think about it for a moment. Why, why would God invite you, an alien, a dependent, why would He invite you into His presence if it was not possible? Why would God tear the veil from the top to the bottom demonstrating to us that it was His intent in the first place. It was His plan to tear down what had kept humanity from experiencing the fullness of His presence if He never intended for you to get there. Why? Because He did those things. He does that. Listen to what the Scripture tells us. It says, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent or nor of human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. It also says, it's by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not uh, uh, from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. It also says this, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill His good purpose. It is God who works in you. It is God who works in you. Listen to me this morning. It is God who works in you. It is God who works in you. And I just wonder how many of you have spent the better portion of your life trying to do it yourself? How many of you have lived by this unwritten or written list of I've got to do this and I've got to do this and I've got to make sure I do that and I can't do this and I've got to say this? And I, how many of you live by those things the vast majority of your life? You know what happens when we live that way? We run ourselves ragged. Because we look at this bar, we look at this thing that God says, okay, this is what it means, this is what is expected for you to be in my presence. And we look at this list right here and we go, 
man, that's a lot of things. Okay, I got to make sure I'm doing this, and I got to make sure I'm doing that, and I got to make sure I'm living this way, and I got to make sure I'm living that way. And we never quite get to that place. And so we're like, man, I guess I, guess I can't really be there, but man, I'm going to die trying. But the thing is, too often we die before we're really dead. And we die in our spirit and we, we die in our desire to even try anymore. And we say, you know what, I can't, I can't do this, so I'm just going to be who I want to be. Be what I want to be. I'm going to do, do my thing because obviously I can't. I mean, I mean, who could live that way? Can't do that. But it comes down to this. If it's God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill His good purposes, the question for you is, are you willing to let go of your purposes? Are you willing to let go of your purposes so that God's purposes can be fulfilled in you? All these things all these things can really be summed up in, in one thing that Jesus said. He said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. It this is a holy love. A holy love that, that resides deep in the heart of each person who decides that they're going to set aside their purposes for the, and their own will and their own plans for the purpose of the will and the plan of God. And it produces a blameless life that, that becomes full of integrity and it leads us in a life of right living that's honorable and worthy of the name follower of Christ. And it gives us the ability to speak truth into every situation with sincerity that just oozes with confidence and strength. And it causes us to realize that gossip and the running of our mouths does nothing but tear down other people. And there's no place for it in holy love, church. It produces a, a new language of love in our hearts that simply cannot speak evil of anyone because where the presence of God is, evil cannot exist. Amen. And it creates such an aversion in our spirit that the things that are not of God, uh, that, that we have such an aversion to these things, that these things that are wicked and things that are evil, that we have no space to accommodate it. My holy love will not allow me to accommodate this wicked and this evil in my life. But yet we cannot help but speak in love to those who choose otherwise. Holy love builds in us an, an awareness of the things that are honoring to God. And it brings us to a place where we just have this overwhelming desire to lift them up and to celebrate these things that are righteous in our world. And holy love, it holds to the truth even if it costs us everything that we have. Holy love is focused on how we can help others, not on how we can get ahead. Holy love is truly loving God with, with all of our being. And then in turn, loving others, all the others.
when we faithfully and obediently abide in God's presence, there is nothing that can remove us from that place. Verse 5 says that those who do these things shall never be moved. You know, with all the pushing and the pulling and nudging and knocking that comes as a result of living in this broken world, there's something to be said for having a solid foundation on which to stand. A foundation that can't be moved. I mentioned this last week, and the principle I think is still appropriate for us today. It is the combination of trust and obedience that is necessary in the life of a Christian. Trust and obedience. We trust that God's presence is truly available to us because of Jesus' sacrifice, and then we obey in recognition of that promise. And I can't help but think of that course. <laughs> trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus Amen. but to trust and obey. And I just think the world is full of too many Christians that aren't very happy in Jesus. And if I had to guess, I'd say it's because they're not trusting and obeying God with their lives. Yep. We need more of those in here. I don't know who it was, bring them anytime. All right. <laughs> That's awesome. For those of you online that could not hear that, we just had a small child go, yep. <laughs> Amen. There is nothing you will find in this life that compares to the peace that comes from resting in the presence of God. Amen. Nothing. But to find that peace, to live in that peace, there has to be an acceptance of the invitation and then an intentional and radical change in who you are and what you're about. Can I repeat that? To find that peace that, that cannot be compared to anything else, and then to live in that peace, you have to accept the invitation that you have been given and, and choose to willingly step into that forgiveness and step into that salvation. And then there must be an intentional and a radical change in who you are, and what you're about. There must be. I spoke about John Wesley a little bit earlier. He is the father of the Wesleyan tradition, which is what we are a part of. The, the Church of the Nazarene, we are steeped in Wesleyan thought. And out of that comes our belief that holy love, it's not an option on the menu of Christianity. What I'm talking about today is not something that we can walk from this place and go, meh, I don't really know about that. I'll give it some consideration. No, this is something that Scripture is very clear on, that living in holy love, receiving holy love, and living in holy love is a required hallmark, trademark, characteristic of a follower of Jesus Christ. It's the obedience part, by the way. 
It is a necessity. And years ago, John Wesley wrote uh, something I want to share with you, and I'm going to paraphrase it a bit. I'm going to put it on the screen, and I changed some of the language because John Wesley wrote a long, long time ago, all right? So I changed some of the language a little bit, but it's all still the same exact ideas. I want it to be easier for you to understand. But let's listen to what John Wesley wrote about holy love. He said, there is nothing higher in religion. He's talking about holy love. There is nothing higher in religion. There is nothing else. If you look for anything more than love, you're looking in the wrong direction. You ever look for something other than love in religion? Yeah, we do, a lot. He says, There's, if you're looking for anything else, you're looking in the wrong direction. If you're asking others, have you received this or that blessing? If you mean anything but more love, you're wrong. You are leading them in the wrong direction, and you're putting them on the wrong track. Let me pause right there. He's saying, holy love is what it's about. Holy love should be the banner that we fly. Holy love should be what the spark that gets our fire going. Holy love must lead the way. He says, if you're focusing on anything else than holy love, you're missing it. If you're telling people they need this or they need that or they need to do this, they need to do that, but you're not leading with holy love, John Wesley's saying, you missed it. And he goes on to say this, so settle this in your heart that from the moment God has saved you from all sin, your aim is to be nothing more than holy love. He says, you can go no higher than this until you reach heaven. In other words, while we are on this earth, our aim must be holy love. In 1986, my father was pastoring a church in Topeka, Kansas. We had, well, they had moved from the mission field in Brazil in the late 70s, and they had taken this church in, in Topeka, and um, he'd been there for, for probably close to the 10-year mark or so. And uh, about this time, about uh, 85, 86, he had made some very important decisions in his life, and the first one was this, is that he was going to return to school and he was doing some master's work at the University of Kansas there in Lawrence, which was about 30 minutes down the road, and uh, while he was continuing to do his ministry. And the second decision he made was that he decided that our family was going to move out of the parsonage that we lived in the entire time we'd been there, a nice home right there adjacent to the, to the church property that he wanted to buy. He wanted to buy a home. Um, and, it, and, and it's not as common today as it used to be, but a lot of pastors would spend their entire ministry in a parsonage. And when the time came for them to retire, they had nothing, right? And so he said, I don't want to do that. I want to, I want to invest in something. And so he made the decision that, they were going to, that we were going to move out of the parsonage, and uh, we had no money. And so my grandma loaned him $20,000 to buy a house. The house was, uh, if you're familiar with Topeka, Kansas, there are parts that are great, there are parts that are not. This was part that is not. At one end of the block was a grain mill where the railroad tracks ran. The house next to us was a junkyard combination chicken coop. <laughs> the house next to us had a guy living in it, but for all intents and purposes looked completely abandoned. He paid $20,000 for this house. My dad poured his heart and soul into it and uh, did everything, did all the work, and, and it was our home. We had to move from the middle school that we were in that was in a an almost exclusively white, well-to-do neighborhood into a, a very diverse neighborhood where almost every child was under the poverty level, including us. There were some people in the church that did not like what my father had done. 
First of all, they did not like that, that he was uh, working on his education, even though his work with the church never faltered. They didn't think it was appropriate that he spend that kind of time uh, working on a master's degree, that his focus needed to be on the church things, but he never, nothing he did ever faltered. There were some people in the church that did not like the fact that the, that the pastor was now living in a low-income area. It wasn't appropriate for their pastor to live in that neck of the woods. And uh, so the, the lay leadership of the church, they came to the pastor and they said, listen, uh, to my father, they came to my father and said, listen, uh, there are some people that have a problem with this. There are some people that are unhappy with the things that you're doing. And, and, and my father said, well, I mean, I can leave. If it's enough of a problem, I can leave. Now, I, I suppose that it, well, he did. <laughs> we left. I remember my dad resigned at that pastorate for a year or more. He, he worked and did anything he possibly could to support my family. My mom taught piano lessons in the house. I remember my dad worked for an ad agency. <laughs> like, we didn't even have a computer. He went and worked for an ad agency, and I remember he quit that job the day they told him to make an ad for Budweiser. He tuned pianos. He did anything he possibly could to support my family. It would have been easy in his situation to be so upset with the church and to be so unhappy that he could have created a wall between himself and every relationship that he had built over the past 10 years. It would have been easy, I suppose, to just cut ties and run and be gone. It would have been easy to shuck the to shake the dust off his sandals and just leave town. And like I said, while my dad did go ahead and step aside, he never once treated those who had treated him so poorly in a negative manner. Not once. Not once did he speak ill of them. I never heard anything from the dinner table about this person or that person. Not once did he gossip about them or tell others about this horrible thing that had been done to him. Not once did he cut ties and decide to never speak to those again who had done him wrong. Not once. And today, some of the people that were responsible for running my dad out of that church are his best friends. Some of those friendships are stronger than they were 30 years ago. Some of those people supported my father in his ministry when he chose to go work at the University of Kansas and work with international students. They gave him money as a missionary. And the reason is this, holy love. You see, my father, he demonstrated And he lived holy love. He leads a blameless life. He is not perfect. And sometimes he irritates the tar out of me. <laughs> Sorry, Dad, I know you're going to watch this. But he has... 
led a blameless life. What he did was right. He did what was right in that situation. And he spoke truth with sincerity, and he refused to gossip, and he refused to speak harm against those who were his friends. He demonstrated what I've been talking about today in such a way that as I prepared for this message, it was that, that story of his life that was a part of my life that just kept stirring in my spirit. Holy love is not something that you work for. It is something that is given to you. It is imparted to you. It is poured into your spirit, and then it becomes a part of who you are. In the toughest of situations, when your human nature says to point the finger, holy love says to embrace. When your human nature says to speak behind another one's back, holy love says to keep your mouth shut. When human nature says to speak ill of another, holy love says to guard your tongue before it leads you into a pit of separation from God. And this holy love is available to you if you will choose to surrender your life, to surrender your plans, your desires to God. To allow the Holy Spirit to invade every inch of your being. Perhaps you're listening to what I'm saying today. And if you're willing to be honest with yourself, you could say the grace that you have received has not yet done its sanctifying work in you. The grace that you have received through the gift of salvation has not yet done its sanctifying work in you. For me, it was 22 years ago on the floor of a barracks room in Okinawa, Japan, that God finally got a hold of me. See, I had experienced the grace that was afforded to me through salvation, but I had yet to experience the grace that was afforded to me through sanctification. And it was in that moment for me that God began to do a purifying work in my life, a path that I still walk today as I seek to be more and more like Christ. I am not perfect. You are not perfect. But we are on a path of perfection, of spiritual perfection, as we become more and more and more like Christ. But this only happens, guys, when we say, you know what? It's not about me. It's not about what I want. It's not about what I desire. It has to be entirely about what God wants for me. And I want you to know that that can happen for you today. All it takes is a surrendered heart. You see, for some of us who are dumb, that's me. It takes a situation like I had to endure in my life where I had reached 
about the lowest that I've ever been in my entire life. And when I reached that moment and I didn't think I had anything left, it was in that moment that God said, are you ready now? And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because you've been there. You have reached that lowest of low where you finally said, okay, God, I cannot do this anymore on my own. I'm, I'm going to give you all that I am. But some of you, some of you are not very happy Christians. <laughs> some of you have lived in that grace of God's salvation maybe, maybe for many, many years, but you have yet to step into the grace of God's sanctification. You have yet to surrender your life, to surrender fully to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, to surrender fully to allowing the Holy Spirit to take up residence in you. And I want you to understand that this means that what currently occupies your spirit, whether it is anger or it is jealousy or it is bitterness or it is addiction or it is any other possible remnant of your human nature, these things must be surrendered at the feet of the cross. They must be. If you are going to invite the Holy Spirit into your heart, there cannot be room for anything else. In order for holy love to work, there has to be an eradication of every other part of who we are. So let me ask you, would you like to do that today? We're going to sing in just a moment. I ask the team to go ahead and come on up. And I'm going to invite you to respond. These, these altars are a place where we do business with God, we say sometimes. But it might also be a place where we just need to come and surrender. We might need to come and have others pray with us and pray over us and maybe someone to back us up and support us and say, hey, I need to give it all to God. The king is inviting you to the top of the hill. He's inviting you into his presence, into the temple, the sanctuary. He's inviting you into his holy love. Would you come? Father, as we respond to your word, as we respond to your call in our lives, I pray for a genuine spirit and truth moment in this place today. Father, I pray for an elimination of all distractions. That our, our hearts right now could be focused on you. What are you saying to us right now? What are you speaking to us right now in this moment? Your presence is here. It's not something we have to usher in. You are here. You are ready. You are waiting for us. We are the problem. We have to listen. The scales have to come off our eyes so we can see. So God, we ask, open ears, open eyes. Help us to hear and help us to see the things we need to hear and see today. God, I pray for conviction in our spirits. Pray for an overwhelming 
reality of your sanctifying grace in this place today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us this morning?